I am Jeremy Dean QC. I have been practicing as a criminal defense barrister since 1983. This series of podcasts spotlights the criminal justice process, a cornerstone of our free and democratic society. I will also be looking at the effects of coronavirus upon the criminal justice system. I will be speaking to prisoners, prisoners' relatives, campaigners, lawyers, and others. Together, we will take a global look at the criminal justice process under the scourge of coronavirus and generally. This is Criminal Justice on Trial. My guest today is Andrew, who has spent a number of years in prison. And I'm going to be discussing those years with Andrew, his current situation and his views on our custodial system in this country. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Can I begin by asking you to tell us just a bit about your background? Yeah, um, so I I grew up on a housing estate in South London um, uh, with my grandparents. And yeah, I, I mean, I did the things that most normal kids, I think, do. I mean, I did the Cubs and the Scouts and all that kind of outdoorsy stuff. Um, but then in later years from kind of teenage years, I don't want to say peer pressure, but I started to get involved in um, soft drugs and alcohol uh, and then eventually became uh, addicted to hard drugs. Um, How old are you, Andrew? I'm 42. And... I imply from what you've told us, you've said that you were brought up by your grandparents, that your contact with your parents um, stopped at a fairly young age, did it? It did, but to be honest, um, I think it was a, a cultural thing. I don't, I didn't, I never got the sense that it was um, unusual for um, third generation Caribbean boy like myself to grow up with the grandparents. It was just one of those things that for, um, people in the Caribbean community particularly was, was one of those things that happened, especially if your your parents were kind of young back in the 70s and 80s, which is exactly, you know, the story that, that I have, which is um, that my mum was quite young. She was um, in her uh, mid-teens when, when she had me, mid to late teens. Which part of London uh, did you grow up in? I grew up in South London. I grew up in Brixton. And, and did you have ongoing contact with your parents whilst you were being brought up by your grandparents? With my mum, sure, but not with my, my dad. Um, I, I know my dad and I've met him on a number of occasions, but we never really had a relationship. Right. Um, which, is, which is unfortunate, but it is what it is. I'm not one of those people that blames um, you know, my, my mistakes on not having a father because actually I came from a very loving home uh, with my gran and my grandfather. It, it, it's already evident, if, if I might say so, from our introductory exchange, that you are a very lucid um, guy. And yet, <laughs> and yet you're going to go on to tell us that <clears throat> from 2007, um, you spent a significant number of years in prison. C c before we come to that, um, yeah. bef before that long spell in prison began, uh, as you were growing up and getting older, did you find yourself getting into trouble with the police? Unfortunately, yes, I did. I mean, it's really bizarre because one of the things I tried to do from 
uh, sort of 15, 16, is I really had this desire to set up some kind of a youth forum, youth council, and that's exactly what we ended up doing. We set up the first Lambeth Youth Council in Brixton uh, in around 1992, I think it was, and um, uh, that then morphed into what, today is the Lambeth Tigers Football Club because we experienced the fact that young people we were trying to engage with didn't want to sit down and have meetings and talk about interests, views and aspirations, which is where we were taking it. So uh, together with a friend of mine who was a lot older than me, uh, Thomas uh, Butler, we set up the Lambeth Tigers Football Club, which today is still going and it's run by one of the young people who um, was a member of the team when we when we set it up back in 1995, I think that was. Um, but one of the things that happened for us is that we were making noises about young people that were being stopped and searched and questioned by police for what we believed was no other reason than the fact that they, they were black or they came from a particular housing estate or they wore particular clothes. And that set me up, I think, um, not to say that I'm special and different, but it set me up to be on a bit of a collision course with with the police. So, so can um, I just can I, can I just ask you, please, that you're talking about overzealous, if not unlawful, stop and search. Which which, yeah, which, which yeah. sort of year span are we on now? Are we in the late nineties or or what? We're in, we're in the kind of the mid uh, mid to late nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 just in summary terms, because I really want to come on shortly to your your long um, experience of custody, just in summary terms, what kind of trouble did you find yourself getting into? But before um, you finally got your long sentence? I, um, it, it was usually very um, silly stuff. I mean, I would, um, I, I remember driving a vehicle without having a license and insurance and all, all the things that you, you need to have. So, you know, it was quite right that I was stopped and, and dealt with that. Um, but it was that kind of thing. Um, and then I remember an occasion when um, I was accused of being a drug dealer. I've never dealt drugs. I mean, I've, I've often consumed them, but I've never never dealt them. Um, and the, the main crux of um, what seemed to happen to me was that I would say things that some people would find um, perhaps inappropriate or just unacceptable. Uh, and unfortunately, it was the truth. It wasn't just as it was painted out at the time that, you know, here, here was a young guy with a chip on his shoulder, because uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's no secret that I wanted uh, at one point to, in some way, work with the youth and community arm of the police, uh, you know, to, to kind of break down barriers. And that's exactly what we did with the Lambeth Tigers. We ended up organising two years on the trot, a football um, tournament with police officers. It sounds as if, during the period of time you're describing, you believed that the Metropolitan Police were institutionally racist, to use the, as it were, official term. Is that, is that your recollection and, 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 and standpoint of policing at that time? At that time, at that time yes, it is, unfortunately. Um, and the, the, the terribly sad thing is, is that there were a number of people, not just myself, we were working really hard to try and break down those barriers. And it just seemed to, well, certainly to me, that there were people that didn't want those barriers to come down. And I just find that that police was really officers. sad. You mean police officers didn't want those barriers to come down? Is that what you're saying? I can't specifically say police officers, but it felt like it because it just felt like a really insurmountable um, kind of uh, venture to um, embark on 
Um, I mean, for example, when we organised the football um, tournament, I don't want to keep going on about that. We organised the football tournament so that the young people could be at the heart of it. And I remember very clearly that once we'd done that, the press came and I, I was told that the press office of the police had um, made a request. And that request was that the, the picture of the police officers was the big picture and that the young people was the inset. And I just found that really uh, quite frustrating because the young people were really excited about being in the paper and playing football with police officers. But for some reason, um, the press office decided to take that for their own for their own gain, and I kind of get that, but it it was just really frustrating at the time because then we have to go back to these young people and convince them, look, that you know there is a reason that that's happened, and it's nothing to do with, with you particularly. Well, just just because I'm I'm anxious to come on to uh, more recent events, but just before we do, a couple of issues that I just want to take you up on. Um, on the premise that police officers were institutionally racist for a given period of time, what what effect did that have on the young ethnic community? Um, it had. See, I think one of the one of the major incidences that took place was around 1995 when there was a death in custody in, in Brixton, uh, which resulted in riots, which you know well recorded. Um, after obviously the 80s um, so the effect really was a deep sense of mistrust uh, bitter resentment um, I, I would possibly even venture as far as to say hatred um, for me I was quite bitter um, for, for some time and luckily I, I met somebody who said to me that one of the things you really need to do is focus on you get better and don't be bitter and I remember those you know those words really um, quite clearly, and that's that's exactly what I, you know, I tried to do. But yeah, I, I think some of that pain, it, it's still there, and it, it, I don't even want to use the term trauma, but it is an, a sense of trauma, and, and the trouble with trauma is that it takes a long time for it to heal. In fact, you say that people said to you, you know, don't be bitter, get better, but you ended up serving how how long in Her Majesty's prisons? I did a total of 12 and a half years. 12 and a half years. And that sentence yeah. was what what's known as a, an IPP, Imprisonment for Public Protection, yes? Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. So essentially that meant that you were given a, a fixed period um, to serve, but you could be held indeterminately subject to the discretion of the parole board. Just tell us, Andrew, the fixed period that the judge ordered in your case, yeah. after which you, you ought to have been released, subject to the parole board, feeling that you were safe to be released. What was that fixed period? So in ordinary circumstances, what the judge told me is he would have given me a term of four years and I would have done half of that. And minus the remand time, I think we came down to a figure of one year and 250 plus days um, as my minimum fixed term tariff. Um, but well, part of me, when I was told this, I, I wasn't clear about what was going on. So I didn't even have the answers. And I, I, I just assumed that after two years, I'd be released. But in fact, you, um, in, fact that, in fact, you what, stayed in overall for... About 12 years, over 12 years? Yes, 
yes, I did. Yeah. And very briefly, because I, I really want to focus on the outcome of this rather than, the, 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 than what took you there. But very briefly, what is it? Yeah. That, what is it that you did that led you to serve so many years of your life in custody? Essentially, the the index offence, as they call it, um, was a, a domestic incident involving um, two people, um, one male, one female. I won't say anything more than that. But um, yes, so. Nobody was, you know, I think it's important for me to say that no one was physically injured or, or harmed in, in, in that sense, uh, which doesn't make it better. Um, but I, I I did struggle for a number of years, kind of sitting in prison, wondering why it was that there were people doing, in my view, uh, much more serious um, crime uh, and offences where people were, you know, either dying or being um, quite uh, badly injured that were doing less time than I did. But just, can you um, just, I know it's complex, but yeah. in effect, the, 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 the guide that the judge gave was that you should be released after approximately two years. You, you served 10 more years than that. I mean, in a nutshell, can you, can you try and convey to us what it is mm. that led you to be detained for so much longer than was contemplated? So one of the things that was happening with IPP is that somebody decided that anybody who got an IPP would have to do offending behaviour courses. And to give you a typical example, I met one guy on my journey who got a tariff of 12 months and then had to do a course which had a five-year waiting list. So what was happening is there was a huge bottleneck of um, people being required to do offending behaviour courses that weren't available to them, um, having to sit down literally, being warehoused and waiting um, inordinate periods of time to get on these courses to prove um, to the parole board and others that their risk could be sufficiently managed in the community. And, and I mean, I know, uh, we know that IPPs were subsequently abolished, although not retrospectively. But, mm. but yeah. the, problem, the problem seemed to be that the system just couldn't deal with IPP prisoners who were on the face of it in for a short space of time, but had to be reviewed and therefore, due to resources, uh, were held for much, much longer. Is that a fair summary of what the problem was? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think so. Um, I think one of the things that I experienced as well was that uh, for some reason, because um, IPPs were what they were and, and, and staff and, and people in positions of power understood that you had to really toe the line, you know, um, to a point that you, you kind of almost, um, the only way I can explain it is literally singing for your supper on a daily basis. Um, and so in a way, I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I felt quite bullied at times um, because I, I didn't want to be seen to be trying to manipulate my way through the system. I just wanted to be seen as me and be allowed to be assessed as something other than dangerous, because that's what I was assessed as, as being dangerous at do, one do, point. Do you, think, do you feel that you were dangerous? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Or, or, or now? Are you dangerous now? Good God, no. No. I, I, so, so, I'm not a dangerous man. I've never been a dangerous man. So, so how... What are your feelings towards the judge having given you a sentence which which implied or expressed that you were dangerous when in yourself you firmly believe that you're not, never have been? Uh, I, th I think, you know, uh, 
I think he was misjudged, if I can use that kind of term. But I, you know, I don't have sleepless nights thinking about him or anybody else in in, in that regard. Um, all I ever wanted to do, and I'm doing now, is getting on with my life and just trying to reclaim the years that have been been taken away. Um, I mean, the reality is, I have to accept some responsibility that I committed an offence, which would have led to custody. Uh, I just think that that custody was hugely disproportionate to the offence. And and in terms of the the effect of being held in custody in the context that you're describing, what what if any effect do you think, what if any impact do you feel that has had on your your mental health? Um, I, I can't get away from the fact that so many things happen that could have been prevented. I mean, one of the examples that I always draw on because it, it it's quite um, painful is that I remember meeting a man on my sentence who, you know, I can't name, but um, I remember seeing him struggling and I went to the authorities, which I didn't do easily, just to say, look, you need to keep an eye on this guy. Two weeks after I did that and everybody ignored me, he was dead um, because he just couldn't cope anymore. And for reasons that I'm still unclear about, nobody could see that. And one of the things that prison did give me was just an ability to be able to sit down and be able to tune in to how people are feeling and, and, and tune in a little bit to my, my own feelings and emotions and know that when I needed to isolate, it was because I needed to isolate, you know, um, which wasn't always seen as a good thing. I think there were times when people would uh, look at your isolation as, a, as a, a, an alarm bell, but actually, you know, there's no harm. I mean, look at us. We're all isolating now. Um, not because we want to, but because we have to. Um, and I just, you know, I, I have issues with that still. Um, but I've spent a long time kind of talking about that stuff and working my way through those those, those issues. Um, I think that we've passed this point of constantly saying, you know, lessons need to be learned from X and Y and Z. Um, I, I think that a time has really come now to learn from those who've lived the experience, you know, asking questions of those who've lived the experience and trying to uh, prevent some of these uh, issues before they become problems. All right. Well, can can, can, can we just home in on that? Because um, that's exactly what I want to move on to, which is what, 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 what the public can learn from your experience. Um, Generally speaking, as regards prison conditions and circumstances, are they more punitive than rehabilitative or are they substantially rehabilitative? What would you say? Uh, I'm sad to say that it's the former and not the latter. Um, and I say that because there are still prisons. I don't know, you know, if people know it or, or care about it, but there are still prisons that have slop out. You know, they don't have uh, proper sanit sanitation. So you, you have to uh, press a button and come out um, for, you know, a window of maybe three to five minutes um, to go and use the, the, the recess to go to the toilet. Did, or, did you do that yourself? I did, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, and I, I find that, you know, in this day and age and i know that's overused but in this day and age that we still have prisoners doing that kind of stuff is unforgivable um i think that one of the things that i heard and it took going to prison to hear it was that you can judge really a society by the way it treats its prisoners um and i just think that 
you know, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, I think we should be learning lessons. We really should be learning lessons from places like Finland and Norway, um, where they treat their prisoners much differently. And it's about the, the fact that you've taken away the liberty rather than, you know, the dignity of the individual. So just taking you, just taking you up on that, you're making mm. reference to the way in which prisoners are treated. And, and obviously, you know, it's always a bit risky to generalise. But how, how would you say prisoners in this country are treated? Um, I think, I mean, my answer can only be about the experience and what I saw. Um, and, and that is that um, the system is really overwhelmed. You know, there are too few staff dealing with too, far too many prisoners. And, and, and it just means that it makes the thing the whole thing more complex. It's incredibly difficult for um, the amount of staff to deal with the, the complex needs of the amount of prisoners that they've got in front of them. I think that uh, we could be doing much better, is, is the short answer. Uh, we really could be doing much better. What, 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 uh, what is it? You, you talk about, um, you know, they're not being sufficient staff. Mm. What do you believe? The, the, the legitimate role of a prison officer is? I think the legitimate role of a prison officer is to do all that they can to disabuse individuals of the idea of leaving prison and reoffending. But the only way they can do that is if they're empowered, along with other agencies that meet people on the other side of the gate, to help them with the options um, that that they can embrace that mean that they're not likely to reoffend, um, particularly if that offending is to do with you know kind of monetary value or or you know just living. Um, if it's just generally violence, then you know that's that is what it is, and, and you know those people have to be dealt with um, with stronger sentences. I don't think anybody would want anything less than that. But um, I mean, do, do you believe from all the years you spent in prison? that, again, speaking in general terms, that prison officer, that the average prison officer has the requisite training and or personality to perform a, a rehabilitative role as opposed to simply being a turnkey? Oh, no, God, I, 100% I believe that. And the reason I believe that is because I've met them. I've met some of the officers who have really gone out of their way to help myself and, and others, but their lives have just been made difficult because they are just rank-and-file officers who have to do what we're doing, and that is to toe a particular line. Because I, I remember a governor once saying to me that one of the reasons he was um, quite reticent about signing off on release on temporary licence, or rotel for some people, was because his mortgage depended on it. Um, and that was quite worrying, because if you get to an open prison and somebody's reluctant to sign... Um, a, a, a license to let you out to, you know, to put in place the things that hopefully will stop you reoffending, then that's not really sending the, the the right message to those people. But did you come across? Did you also come across prison officers who were um, rough, brutal, even racist? Yes, yeah, I came across a few of those. So wait, well, uh, I mean, was that a small proportion? To be fair, yeah. Um, I mean, in the entire time that I was in, in prison, I didn't um, meet many. There, there were some who were very subtly um, racist and there were some that were quite overtly racist. But the majority um, of officers just wanted to come in, do the job and go home. Um, 
and you know generally was was the majority I, I didn't come away from prison thinking oh my god they're all a bunch of racists i didn't come away all thinking right, well that, that that's that's obviously you know an intriguing and highly uh, valuable perspective Mo- moving on and really l- linking in as as we approach uh, our conclusions um to the current situation and coronavirus and talk of um prisoners being released earlier that kind of issue i mean if if you before we come directly to that if you could be placed in charge of a rehabilitative prison schedule um are you able to say what that schedule would be what the essence of your rehabilitative program would be well bizarrely i did actually um write something on social media a few months ago saying that you know whoever's in charge please put me in charge of a prison um because i would do things very differently i think that I mean, I'm not in a position to be campaigning on on anything, but with the coronavirus, I know that there are people, because I've spoken to them, who are really concerned about loved ones. Um, And I think that there are people who ultimately could be safely um, released from prison because their offences are relatively minor. um, And that could free up so much time. And actually... Uh, make prisons a safer place, particularly with the coronavirus. Um, I think that there are things that governors need to be doing in terms of taking not so much risks, but I think more calculated, educated uh, decisions around um, how they run run a prison. And I, I think for me, making access to things that would ultimately put people in a better position than when they came into prison, when they leave, uh, has to be top of the agenda. Um, I mean, I've seen people, um, particularly in the open estate, really struggling to to obtain grants and things to go and do um, trades and and, uh, jobs that they've never thought about doing before, whether it's um, kind of this track safety stuff or CSCS cars to go and work on building sites, all that kind of thing. And if if they're having to fight literally um, to to get that stuff, um, to get the paperwork in place, um, when they don't succeed at doing that, it, it just kind of sends this message, well, if, if nobody else can be bothered, then why should I? And then they go back to a, a lifestyle of reoffending because it's just easier. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I follow that in, entirely. There's there's been a lot of talk recently of early release. Um, mm. Do you believe that a significant number of prisoners, serving prisoners, could be released immediately without risk to the public? Yes, I would say one hundred percent. They they could. How many? Um, How many thousands? Um. It's difficult to say, but yes, I, I would say thousands. I would say that we could start um, with the open prison estate because if you're in an open prison, then you're there for a reason. Um, and there are lots of open prisons. I don't know if people, you know, kind of know and get a sense, but there are a lot of open prisons around, and there are a lot of prisoners that are coming out on day release or had been up until coronavirus and the lockdown um, because they're in a prison that ultimately they can abscond from at any time should they choose to do so. All right, so that's that's open prisons, but in terms of the closed prison environment, yeah. elderly prisoners, prisoners yeah. with, with 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 minor personality disorders, very young prisoners. Um, that category of prisoner. I mean, on the face of it, there are there are many who could be released 
due to the yep. pressures on the prisons without people uh, struggling to sleep at night, worrying about risk to to their safety. Is it, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would, because I, I mean, I, I don't go out very often at the moment, but when I do, it's for a purpose in line with the guidance that we've been given. And it's clear from the streets that generally people are taking that advice. And the, uh, I mean, I don't want to preempt anything, but it seems to me the criminality seems to have gone down. I don't see very many police officers out on the street. They're busy doing other things. Um, so the fact that criminality has gone down sends a message to me that generally speaking people are observing this and really taking it quite seriously. Can I finally come on um, Andrew to your current situation because having described the the long and winding road you've been down what is your current uh, job? (laughs) So currently I do an assessment type of role and I work for the Ministry of Justice. So are you, you're employed by the Ministry of Justice? Yes, yes I am, yeah. And, 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 and is that a job that was fixed up prior to your release from prison? Yes, yes it was. There was an opportunity that presented itself and I, I ran at it. And what are you assessing? So, um, what the office, I do, the office I work in, we, we get complaints and things from prisoners um and so we're the last port of call outside of the 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 legal process perhaps because some people can take the legal route um in the complaints procedure so there's a complaints procedure they go through that procedure and then ultimately if they're not happy then they come to the department i work for and you enjoy that job i do I, i think i find it fascinating and i'm beginning to see um literally see things from from both sides because some of my colleagues haven't really come into contact with prisoners but really enjoy what they do and ultimately i've come from prison so i'm seeing some of the complaints that come through uh you know are what they are and i i I see that um you know the 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 side from people who are looking at it um with fresh eyes but not having that experience of having been to prison or having anyone in prison I mean, it sounds as if you think that the public interest would be served much more if, if, if more Ministry of Justice employees had prison experience like you. Um, I, do you know what? I think that there are so many walks of life that, that could experience, um, experience that. I don't see why we, we couldn't have a prison governor who is an ex-offender. I don't no. see why we could parole board members who are ex-offenders. I don't see why, you know, there's, there's so many... Um, parts of like, uh, I or, think even, that, or even judges, perhaps, even judges, even judges, because I, I think that with every job there are going to be certain competencies that you have to meet, and it's up to the you know interviewing panels to decide whether an, uh, an individual candidate meets those competencies. But uh, in one way or another, whether you're an ex-offender or not, you're going to have particular leanings, and I think that um, just because you're an ex-offender doesn't mean to say that you're pro-criminal. Um, And I think it's really important that people understand that. We've discussed early release. Is there anything else specific that you feel could be done to address the prison crisis as regards coronavirus? I think we need to really seriously look at the potential for um, uh, almost um, uh, going through some of the prisons that could ultimately be emptied 
um, virtually, um, allowing those people to go home, whatever that case may be, but most importantly, allowing us to take staff um, from prison from prisons that we managed to close successfully to go to the you know the, the prisons that they're most needed. There are prisons around this country, Victorian ones in particular, that are huge and are unsafe. And they're unsafe because when there is a disturbance or an issue, officers are not able to get to where they need to get to quickly because of the size and the the um, the layouts and the the security measures. Uh, are placed within them uh, and what i mean by that is uh, the amount of gates and things that are placed um on the landings that, that mean that getting from one end of a landing to another is an incredibly laborious process okay well that's that's um real insight i'm gonna draw things to an end in just a moment just a couple of issues i'd like to ask you about finally so reflecting on the fascinating um you know body of information you've you've given us um you spent 12 and a half years in prison. Justin, just very briefly, if you could, could you just paint a picture for us of what it's like for a human being to lose their liberty, to be locked into a room, to be within the control of others at all times and to have no um, influence over their own destiny? C can you just, you know, in a nutshell, describe for us what that feels like? It feels incredibly difficult. And the best analogy I can give you is that I remember very early on being in a uh, closed prison where every day when the officer would close the door, it felt very final and it felt very... Something in me just left me. Um, I was just devoid of anything, any any kind of any feeling. And then what I started to do, when, when lockup came and they'd call lockup, rather than letting the officer close the door on me, I'd close my own door because it was literally like taking some power and control back. And, you know, probably psychologists would have an issue with that. But for me, it was just a kind of a sense of, let me just give myself something back, because everything that I knew or felt was taken away in that one action. Um, you know, prisons are obviously not nice places. They're not meant to be, but... We, we keep talking about it being loss of liberty rather than, than dignity. And the sad thing is, is that at the moment, prisons do both. They rob you of liberty and dignity. All right. Well, you, you could not have put it more incisively. Um, thank you so much for giving up your time to describe your journey to us. It sounds as if you are rebuilding your life with great effect. And I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you, Jeremy. Really appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Join me again next time for another episode of Criminal Justice on Trial. Please don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you heard, give us a good review. And if you have a story to tell, get in touch. Tweet us at justice underscore on trial. <laughs>